In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the right, righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I, have, I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to sub subject everything to himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Okay, hey everyone, nice to see you along at church tonight. Uh, my name is Ross, I'm part of the team here at Janali, and it's great to be with you, uh, great to be in God's Word, and great to be in some air conditioning. How about we, uh, we jump in, we have a think about what this means for us now. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, we pray at the start because on our own, uh, we can never fully comprehend uh, the good news of God. We need the Spirit working in us, so let's pray that uh, God opens our eyes tonight. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we pray that you do that very thing. We pray that you open our hearts tonight. We pray that you help us to know you and see you more clearly. We pray for concentration. We pray for clear minds and we pray for hearts that are ready to be moulded by you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, well, in a second, there's going to be a picture that jumps up on the screen uh, behind me. It's this picture. I wonder, as you look at that picture, what it makes you think about. Like, what's the first kind of word that pops into your head? Maybe it's strength. Maybe it's empowerment. Maybe it's pain. I don't know what it is. Uh, this is the picture that comes up on my, my version of Google search when I look up confidence. This is what comes up. I don't know what that says about me, uh, but, but this is what it is, uh, confidence. And uh, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, to think about what do you picture in your mind when you think about the idea, confidence. Uh, this isn't the first thing that comes into my mind. I have a different image. I have the next image, which uh, I think is on the screen, is this little guy. This is my son, Harry. And, uh, and Harry is an absolute picture of confidence. He's kind of just one of those kids who just... He's just confident. He just goes for it. Uh, he feels really different to our, our two girls. Uh, they're both a little more risk uh, kind of averse. They tend to go the slow way uh, and the cautious way, where Harry's just like a border gate. He'll do whatever he wants. Just yesterday, I uh, put him outside in our backyard. We have this kind of little play gym thing. You can climb up. It has a slide down it. I turned around for literally 30 seconds. I didn't know uh, that Harry had learnt to climb the ladder. And the next thing I knew, rather than just climb the ladder, instead of going down the slide kind of on his tummy or backwards, he decided to try to crawl down the slide head first and uh, landed face first in the mud. I picked him up, I put him on his feet, and then he did it again. And, uh, and that's confidence, isn't it? It's getting absolutely smashed and then just doing the exact same thing uh, straight away. I don't know where you stand on the spectrum of confidence. For some of us, uh, we're naturally really just confident people. We, no matter what the task is, we just kind of go for it. We give it a crack. We see how we go. Uh, for others, we're a little more self-conscious. We're a little less willing to kind of just throw ourselves into things. We maybe need a bit more prodding and convincing. How confident are you? It's an interesting question, isn't it? And, uh, and really, the question that I want to ask here is a little bit different. I really want to know, at the end of the day, how do you know that things in your life will be okay? How do you know you're going to be okay? Now that is a really important question. Take a second and think about that. How do you know you're gonna be okay? <coughs> you can think about being okay in a few different ways, can't you? You can think about it in terms of uh, how you're gonna go, how you're gonna be okay with the things in this life. We all know that there are all sorts of things that come across uh, our days. There's sickness, there's accidents, there's challenges with our little kids and aging parents. As those things come along, as you walk through those seasons, how are you gonna be okay? But it's not just things in this life, it's also the reality of death before us. Now we know as we get older that that's just something that is an ever-present reality. Maybe right now you're watching uh, someone you care about uh, age. Maybe you're presently aware of the, the natural condition of our world. And I wonder, how do you know as you face that moment yourself? How do you know you're going to be okay? Well, that's really where I want to go tonight. I want us to slow down and think about what we trust in. What do we rely on? What are we basing our confidence in when it comes to this life and the world to come? 
That's what Paul uh, is doing for us in this uh, chapter of the Bible, in chapter 3 of Philippians. He's helping us think about what we trust in. He says uh, in verse 1, if you've got your Bibles there, open them back up. He says, "Uh, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. What we're about to read is Paul's safeguard. He wants to keep people safe. And he gives us two warnings here. They're sort of implicit as we work our way through. He wants to give us a warning about misplaced confidence. That's verses 2 through to verse uh, 12. And then he wants to give us a warning about mistimed confidence. That's verses 12 uh, through to the end. Misplaced confidence, mistimed confidence. How do we know we're relying on the right thing at the right time? That's where we're going to go. Well, jump in with me. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, Paul starts in an absolutely punchy way. Have a look at verse 2. Imagine describing someone you know like this. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's, that's full on, isn't it? Would you ever imagine speaking about someone like that? I don't know if I could. And so my first instinct is to think, Paul just needs to kind of calm down a little bit. Like, that's a bit too heavy. But a better response is to think, why is Paul so worked up? Why is he describing people like this? What's kind of going on? And, uh, and what's basically going on here in, the, in this context and the scenario really comes out in that last uh, little part of that sentence. He says, those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is so worked up because there are people who are telling our new believers things that are ultimately untrue and could lead to them not trusting in Jesus properly. It could lead to other people who don't not know Jesus yet to eventually not come to a saving faith. And so Paul, he gets really worked up at the start because the things that people teach sometimes are really dangerous. Sometimes we think ideas are just ideas and you have your beliefs and I have mine. You know, we kind of live in a pluralistic society. It's all okay. And uh, we can bring that into the church, can't we? I know that my personality, I tend to be uh, a bit of a gentler soul. I tend to not call people out and, and say the hard, hard word. I'm not, I'm not like Paul like this. Uh, but there's a danger I know for myself and maybe the danger is there for you too. Wrong teaching is really serious. Wrong teaching can lead to people ending up eternally separated from God. And so straight away we notice that what we're about to read, it's really important. This is life and death stuff. That's why Paul is so worked up. That's why he's saying, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now the mutilate the flesh line, let me come back to that from before. See, what's happening in the context is there are people who are saying that if you want to be saved, you need to do certain religious rituals and practices. Where do you need to put your confidence? Religious practices and rituals. And so Paul knows that's really dangerous and unhelpful. And you remember what he wants to do? He wants to safeguard them. So he's showing them big, shining lights, the most provocative way he can say it, Be careful, this stuff matters. And then he shows us, verse 3, 
What are the two ways or what are the two things we can put our confidence in? Have a look. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Jesus Christ and do not put confidence in the flesh. Notice those two little bits that I've got underlined on the screen. One option, one place that we can put our confidence is we can boast in Christ Jesus. The other place we can put our confidence is in the flesh. By the flesh, uh, and this is kind of confusing in this passage, Paul uses flesh in different ways. Uh, But here, he doesn't mean it necessarily in terms of our physical skin, but he means earthly and worldly things. That's what he's getting at in this verse. He's saying, you can either trust Jesus or you can trust yourself. Those are your two options in life. And these people in the time and place that he's speaking to, they're encouraging people with what they teach and say and do to put their own trust in themselves. And Paul says, watch out for that. And he says, if you keep on uh, looking at what happens next, that he understands almost the temptation of doing that. There was probably a time in Paul's life when he, in fact, did do that, when he put confidence in his own achievements and where he came from. Have a look at verse 4. Although I have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. This is Paul's ultimate boasting kind of sheet. These are all the things in his life that could make him have confidence before God. This list, it breaks into two parts. The first part is all about where he's come from, kind of his nation, his past, his family ties. And the second part is all about what he has done. And we all could write a list like this, actually. We all could write a list, couldn't we, about where we've come from and what we've done. And so many of us, we actually do subtly but surely put confidence in those things. We can learn to boast in those things. I'm sure you've sat at a dinner party or you've been at like an end of year soccer barbecue and you've just had one of those people next to you who just won't stop giving you their kind of list. You know, they'll start, oh, what do you do? Oh, you know, I do this and that and I'm pretty impressive and I drive this car and I live in this place and I've got all my ETFs and I'm pretty cool. You know, okay. We can so easily have this kind of mentality in life, can't we? When we think about the things in our life, the things that are going to come our way, we can think, I'll be okay because of my family connections. They'll get me through this. Or we can think, I'll be okay because... I know the right people in the right positions of power or the right people at the right hospitals or the right surgeons or I'll be okay because I've got so much money in my bank account. We can think all these kind of things, can't we? We can so easily, in the things that happen in our life, put our confidence in what we've done or where we've come from. And what we really see at the start of Philippians chapter 3 This is a terrible place to put our confidence. Uh, The rest of the Bible uh, shows us so clearly that when we put our trust in the things of this world, we're often left in a kind of anxious, (laughs) almost anxiety-inducing fear because those things are shaky. 
the ground that we rest on isn't certain and sure. And then Paul turns to show us where he actually puts his confidence. Now have a look at verse 7. But everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them dung so that I may gain Christ. That long list of impressive achievements, that long list of things that should or could or maybe would make him acceptable before a good and loving God, what does Paul say? He says they're a loss. But he goes even one step further. He says everything in his life he considers as dung. Literally, it's the word for garbage or the worst kind of garbage you can imagine. It's something that's disgusting. It's like uh, just as I sat down at the front here and I looked this way, I saw the bottom of James Stedden's foot, right? That was disgusting. That's kind of the vibe, right? It's the bottom of a sweaty foot on a hot day. That's the value of these uh, things. They're rubbish. But the question is, how does that land with you? Just think about the things in your life. Think about the place that you've come from, the family that you've grown up in, the things you've achieved in your life. That feels a bit harsh, doesn't it? See, we can so easily misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that these things don't have value in and of themselves. He's not saying that these things aren't good or impressive or beautiful or worthwhile, those things in our list. No, what he's saying is, when you compare them to Christ and when you compare them to what Christ can do for you, those things are worthless. Those things are worthless. When I was a kid, and probably still today, one of my favourite possessions was my library card. Right? I love my library card. I was the kind of kid who would go to the library after school and just get books out. I love reading and I always had. And a library card uh, for me was a significant and valuable thing. But if I went uh, one day with my library card, I went out and I needed to get some cash out from the bank, and I tried to stick my library card into the ATM, what happens? It probably takes it, maybe, I don't even know, actually. Uh, or at least it spits it back out again if I try. You see, my library card, it doesn't work for the purpose of getting out money. Now, that doesn't mean that's not a good thing. It's a good thing. But it's useless in the circumstances. And so are the things that we can write on our little list of impressiveness. It's useless in the circumstances. It's useless because God ultimately requires something that we can never do on our own. And that's what we see next. Have a look with me at verse 9. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness from God based on faith. See, the place we should put our confidence is not in ourselves and in our own rap list. It's in Jesus. It's having faith in him that his good standing with God, that his perfect life, that his sacrificial death, that his resurrection from the grave is the thing that gives us confidence and hope. Confidence in the things of this world because we know that once we are loved by God, God works all things together for the good. And confidence in the world to come because we know that when we put our trust in him, we become part of his family. 
and everything that happens to Jesus, every benefit he has becomes ours. And just like he was raised, we too will be raised again. There's a beautiful reminder in this passage of what we need to do to be saved. It's not some religious practice. It's not to become moral in some way. It's not to come up with some brilliant, beautiful, individual thought about God. No, it's to put your life in Jesus' hands. It's to ask him to save you from your sins. It's to cling to him and not the impressive achievements or the places you've been or the things you grew up with. It's to lay your life at his feet. And that is something to rejoice in. Because while some of us may have come from impressive places, may have families of honour, may have done impressive things, so many of us won't. And that's the beautiful equaliser. That's the beautiful message of the gospel. No matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, we are all welcome at the table. We are all welcome in God's family. So don't put your confidence in the wrong place. Confidence in yourself leads to pride and arrogance and anxiety and ultimately destruction. Confidence in Jesus leads to freedom and joy and security and ultimately a place at his table, a place where you know you will spend eternity with him. So that's the first thing that he reminds us about confidence. Here's a warning. Do not put your confidence in the wrong thing. Then he changes tax a little bit. He moves from verses 12 to 21 to not so much talk about the what, but the when. If you notice uh, in verse 11, he gives this beautiful picture, sorry, verse uh, 10 and 11, this beautiful picture of the future. Have a look with me. He says, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul here paints a beautiful picture of the project of our life. If you ever wondered what's going to happen in your life, verse 10 and 11, they tell you. If you trust in Jesus, these are the things that are going to happen. You are going to be, slowly but surely, conformed to be like Jesus. He's going to make you like him. That means you're going to suffer at times because Jesus suffered. One day, he will raise you again from the dead. That's your life in kind of 30 seconds. That's kind of cool, isn't it? But the question is, what does that mean in terms of how we view life now? You see, on one hand, we've got this beautiful, great truth. We can take confidence in Jesus. We know where we're going. We know one day he's going to resurrect us from the grave. We're going to spend all eternity in heaven. So what do we do? Well, on one hand, that could make us think, well, okay, I've got nothing to do right now. I can just kind of sit back and do nothing. This is why we can get our confidence and we can lose our timing or our perspective of time. Have a look at verse 12. That's not what Paul thinks. Verse 12. Not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. Paul's point here is that we shouldn't get our timing wrong. We shouldn't think that we're already in the new creation. We shouldn't think that this world is our home. Because what that would do is it would mean that we just kind of stopped. Instead, he says, we need to keep on striving for Jesus. We need to keep on living. We need to press on towards the goal. We need to keep on seeking out and searching for and knowing Jesus deeper and deeper and 
deeper. So the Christian life is not a passive life. It's not a life where we sit back and we just wait and expect things to happen. It's a life where we have a pursuit ahead of us. It's a life where we're always on our feet. It's a pilgrim journey towards Jesus and eventually the prize of the new creation. You see, it's all too easy in our lives to get comfortable, I think, particularly in a place like this, right? A place like the Sutherland Shire. This is a beautiful place. It really is. Uh, The beaches down at Cronulla are wonderful. There's good coffee. There's people we love. There's beautiful national parks. We can so easily think that this world is home. We can get the time wrong. We can think that we're already in heaven, can't we? There's always been that little phrase that the Shire is God's country. And on one hand, we kind of take pride in it and we chuckle. But we shouldn't, actually, if we were were honest. That's a terrible thing to say. That's a really dangerous thing to say, isn't it? When you think about it, that's a deadly idea. Don't think this place is God's country. This isn't God's country. This will make you too comfortable. This will make you stop striving for Jesus. This could make you stop following Jesus. See, that's exactly what uh, is the danger and the warning here. Have a look at verse 18. For I've often told you, and now I say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. They are focused on earthly things. Goodness me, I can be focused on earthly things. Can you? If you're honest, the answer is probably yes. We live on earth, so naturally we are. But we know that uh, the earthly things, the, the things of our world, the cars we drive, the houses we own, the money in our bank, how well our kids do at school, the next piano recital, those things can not just be important to us, but they can begin to dominate our whole mindset, can't they? We can begin to just live purely in pursuit, not of Jesus and the new creation, but the things of this world. And that's really dangerous. So we jest that this is God's country. But we shouldn't. Because that is a dangerous idea. Instead, have a look at what he says in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a saviour from there. The Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. By the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Who are we? We are not people of this world. We are citizens of heaven. We're people of the world to come. We should fix our eyes not on the pleasures and joys of this world, though they're enjoyable, but on the world to come. And we should run not towards the things of this world, but towards Jesus, running deeper into a knowledge of him. It's knowing Jesus. It's having a relationship with him that gives us confidence in this life, that gives us confidence in the face of death. And we can't think that we're home already. As we wrap up and we think about what this means for our lives, uh, this passage starts and ends with two commands. It starts with a command to rejoice. And the command to rejoice at the start of this passage, uh, I think, is confronting. It's confronting because 
he tells us to rejoice and uh, often that doesn't feel like something in our control, does it? Often it feels like, how am I meant to rejoice with this thing going on in my life? It's even more confronting uh, because that uh, word rejoice is in the present tense. It's meant to be taken as something that we are always doing. And he says it not to a certain group of people, but he addresses it to brothers and sisters. He addresses it to everyone. And so Paul here, he's commanding that everyone all the time rejoice. That's tough. So how do we do that? How do we pick up and follow that command to rejoice? Well, it's the next few little words that matter. Have a look back at verse 1. What does he say? Rejoice in the Lord. It's tempting to rejoice in the success of your kids. It's tempting to rejoice uh, in the job promotion. It's tempting to rejoice in the bonus at the end of the year. It's tempting to rejoice in the way that your stock portfolio has grown. But those things will give you a temporary joy. You can do that when they go up. But goodness me, you can't do it when they go down. But if you rejoice in the Lord, if you rejoice in the knowledge of the fact that you are known by God and that you know him, and that by knowing him you are welcome into his family, that you have a security that can get you through anything in life, then we can rejoice. Then we can rejoice. And only then. So rejoice. But he also gives us one other thing to think about in our life. He says, rejoice at the start and have a look at how he finishes. Chapter 4, verse 1. What does he say? I love this verse. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters. What a beautiful way to describe our church family. Loved and longed for. My joy and crown. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord. Dear friends, we rejoice in the Lord and we stand firm in the Lord. We rejoice in the knowledge that we are known by God and we know him and we stand firm in the Lord because we know that he is doing his good work. We stand firm because we know that often it's tempting to give in to the ways of the world and to live for this world's delights. But we need to stand firm. We need to be encouraged that we are not citizens of this world but citizens of heaven and long for the day to come. So as you bring it together as we close, what do you rely on? What makes you think that you're going to be okay in this world and the world to come? Is it the things of this world, the things you've achieved, the pleasures of this life? Or is it the knowledge that you are known by God, that you can be known by God, that you are loved by him and that one day he's coming back to make all things new. One will lead to destruction and one will lead to life. Friends, choose wisely. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the book of Philippians. We just pray that you help us to trust in you. Help us not to delight in the things of this world, but to delight in the things of you. Help us to trust in you and not in ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.